Welcome to the NutraCast, a production by Nutra Ingredients USA. I'm Danielle Masterson. Thank you for joining me here on the NutraCast, where we talk and share insights from inside the nutrition industry. 3D printing technology can be applied to pretty much any industry. They're prevalent in aerospace, jewelry, prosthetics, and yes, even the dietary supplement industry. The growing uses for 3D printing is fostering new opportunities for innovation and business development, but it's also ushering in challenges for attorneys as this technology tests longstanding norms surrounding intellectual property. Here to discuss all this and more is attorney Kevin Bell, partner at Arnold Golden Gregory LLP. Welcome to the NutraCast, Kevin. Hi, Danielle. Hi, Kevin. Uh, so before we get into all that, what is your role at the firm? Because you do a few different things there. Sure. ADG, I am the co-chair of the firm's intellectual property practice group, and I also chair the firm's dietary supplement industry practice, which uh, spans across the, uh, the entire firm. Okay. And so both of those roles are applied to what we're going to be talking about today. Yes, absolutely. And so for those who don't know, what is 3D printing in a nutshell? So, you know, you can kind of define 3D printing in one sentence. I mean, I think the concepts and and what comes up from 3D printing is much broader, but really 3D printing is really just almost a different form of a a process or manufacturing process of of making three-dimensional objects from a digital file. And um, that's a very basic description of that. But the application, I think, is what has become much broader as this kind of technology has come into the space a long time ago and now been evolving into various industries. Yeah. And so do existing intellectual property laws cover 3D printing right now? You know, it's kind of interesting that certainly you can get patents on uh, 3D types of printing as either a method of manufacturing or making a certain type of a composition or, or product. And you can think as broadly as almost like an airplane wing. Um, I mean, that's the extent to which 3D printing is going. They're making airplane parts out of 3D printing. And then the other part, which I think is a very interesting uh, area that um, I was involved in a few years ago, is copyrights and uh, the designs of what comes out of 3D printing and how you can protect it that way. So there's actually multiple ways to um, to do this. And there's potentially a way to to get trade secret protection around, around some of it, but that would involve more than just the printing. That would also involve kind of the secret sauce of whatever your, your product or ingredient is. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I was just going to ask, so what role does 3D printing play in dietary supplements? I, I feel like it's everywhere. You know, we've seen such a great resurgence or, or spotlight put on dietary supplements over the last couple of years, which I think has been really fantastic and great for industry. Uh, 3D printing, I think, adds a layer of, of real sophistication, especially as it relates to the manufacturing process, all the way to regulatory requirements. And when you start getting into personalized supplementation and really separating yourself from others, I think it plays a significant role. Mm-hmm. And so are you getting a lot more inquiries about this technology? You know, sometimes it's not so much that we're getting inquiries as so much as we're taking that idea to clients. You know, what we're seeing really in this industry, with which this is no secret, when you look at supply chain issues right now, you know, you're looking at in March of last year, we were looking at ingredients. How do I get 10 million kilos from this country to that country? You know, that's kind of evolved to a certain point. That's still this. Right now, the biggest, I think, supply chain issue faces consumer packaging, lids, caps, bottles. Do I have to change it for you know, a product that's been on the shelf for 20 years? 3D printing can assist with that. But I think we're, where I think the most interesting part about 3D printing from an intellectual property standpoint, for the supplement industry, the actual manufacturing of whatever the supplement is 
and of itself. And I think, you know, when I talk to people about um, how do they separate themselves from each other in the supplement world with certain ingredients, with many ingredients, there's only so many ways to separate yourself. Uh, Some ingredients are good for certain things and you can do science, but at some point, what makes someone buy yours rather than theirs? And I think that's where 3D printing can play a very creative role for companies and what they do to catch a consumer's eye, or more importantly, I think is probably delivery systems and how you can now deliver supplements, you know, in, in what kind of formats, whether you're doing it in a pill capsule or more interestingly, is it a sustained release or are you trying to release multiple ingredients, but in a time frame? you know, there's ways to do this with 3D printing that I think is, is, is extremely interesting. Yeah. What are some more of those innovations that you spoke about that you're seeing? Well, you know, you, you actually did an article on, uh, on Remedy. The company does a lot with 3D printing and, had, and actually has patents on 3D printing for their supplements. And what they're doing is very, is very creative. And if I recall correctly, a lot of their stuff was personalized medicine where you figured out what kind of supplementation does this person need on this day of the week or this, you know, this week of the month, whatever it is. And then they would then send supplements that corresponded with what you needed there. And that's, that's certainly on the rise. Remedy has a very interesting way. They're using a lot of 3D printing technologies to make those supplements. Where I think you can take that stuff and even go further with it is if you're looking at, uh, let's look at like sustained release formats where we're all familiar with how generally these things work, the microencapsulation, and sometimes it's just dissolving your body with multiple layers of something over it more than others if you put beads in a capsule. 3D technology can actually, I think, enhance that and take that much further by using certain things as to what's going to, what's going to hit and dissolve sooner or faster by maybe thickness or whatever material is being used to use that delivery system. And I think uh, even shapes in, in the supplement industry would be very, very interesting. We're always seeing, um, you know, if you search dietary supplements that hit images, you know, it looks like you're looking at a garden all the time. And people always talk about what's in the bottle. Why not show them what's in the bottle through the use of 3D technology to actually show them what is this ingredient look like? And you can actually start to make supplements that mimic what an actual ingredient might look like if it's part of a plant or part of a root or, or something else. But I think there's ways to get very uh, creative and from a marketing standpoint, be very appealing. But I think also from a delivery system standpoint, be very intriguing as to, I want to, do I want to load something? Do I want something sustained over time? And how do I do that using this technology? You've got a lot of really great ideas. Are these some of the things that you present to some of your clients? Yes, yes, absolutely. Especially those who are in a very congested intellectual property field where you, if you're doing some, we'll often do patent landscaping for people. And when, so when we're looking across a spectrum of intellectual property that already exists to try to make sure, one, that they're not going to walk into someone else's backyard of, of IP that already exists, but what can they do to either find small niches in those in these landscapes that they can fit into um, and get some intellectual property that I can, they can either use themselves or or cross license or license to a third party to monetize that? Um, well, if you were to look at the world of um, CBD and tinctures, I think it's very hard for people selling tinctures in the CBD market to separate themselves by the bottle and what the label looks like and says. They generally are all the same bottle and uh, and it really comes down to labeling and maybe some brand recognition. But what can you do to, to distinguish yourself in a field that 
the packaging and maybe, you know, what people expect to see is the same. And so you're trying to break through and sit next to a Nestle product or, um, you know, even up a Pepsi or a Coke, you know, product or something like that, or, or a large supplement. How do you, what do you do to distinguish yourself? And I think 3D printing is where some of that can fit in. So we'll often, you know, and, and of course we work with inventors um, and sometimes they'll have to have, you know, some knowledge of, of, of 3D printing as well. We can also, you know, sometimes we assist them and partner them with people from universities or other entities that are specialists in that technology. And we bring these folks together and work out licensing arrangements and intellectual property strategies to benefit both companies. So it's like a whole team effort right there. Being a lawyer isn't, uh, you don't wake up every day and say, wow, uh, this is the, this is what I always wanted to do since I was eight years old. Um, mm-hmm. So you have to try you have to try to kind of find a way to do what we do to make it fun. And intellectual property does have, well, it sounds like a very boring area of law. It's where creativity exists. It's where innovation occurs. And so as an attorney and, and actually in our group, we, we really try to be proactive, not reactive to to clients. I try to reach out and be proactive and, and give them ideas when we, when we see them. I think, you know, we're looking at plant-based technologies now. And we're looking at cultured cell technologies now for supplements. I mean, it's all of these technologies are converging into pharmaceuticals, supplements, food, but the application of them is now almost merging across those technologies. And so it's an interesting time. And I think um, we enjoy certainly working with clients to come up with these kind of creative ideas. We don't invent, but we, you know, we, we talk about ideas they might have and, and that kind of spurs and that kind of spurs innovation with our clients. And then we try to, you know, maybe if, if they need to partner them with others, sometimes we don't, they don't, we don't need to. And, and look, there are people out there that are way down the road on some of this, I think, especially on the manufacturing side. Mm-hmm. I personally find this area of the law, the most fascinating. And I really can't think of any other area of law that is growing faster than IP. Yeah. You know, I, um, I think I started working in the supplement space in about 1995 and then around 2000 was doing a lot of litigation in the area of some of the original founding creatine patents on creatine loading and, and other things. And what I saw in the supplement industry was that there were a lot of regulatory FDA attorneys, FTC. I mean, th- those are the things that companies understood. They were very, not very good though at intellectual property protection at the time. And in this industry, when you look at it from an intellectual property standpoint, it sits in a very unique spot because of regulatory things. They're not drugs. They can't be drugs. And so even how you are, what words you use to describe your invention, um, even though you could say the same thing and, and uh, it could be considered a drug, using specific words are important. So when I started focusing on this area, realized there weren't a lot of people servicing this industry. And to be honest with you, I mean, the supplement industry, it's a fun group of people. While they compete, I find them to be collegial. And uh, even when they have to fight, they fight. But at the same time, um, I find it to be a very interesting and fun group of folks to work with. And so unlike when you're working with true, you know, pharma things, I think the supplement industry is more agile to move around. And I think the amount of innovation that has occurred in both food and supplements in the last, let's say five to seven years is exceptionally high. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm it's shocked to see the kind of innovation that's going on. Yeah. There's so much innovation, but the, the law is not really evolving as quickly as this innovation and all this technology that comes with it. What is being done to try to catch up with all this tech? Well, you know, the biggest scare this industry saw and in last, well, maybe ever, uh, was whether or not 
patenting ingredients, patenting natural products or ingredients combined together synergistically, whether or not that was even patent eligible. Um, and this is a, for a separate, whole separate discussion, but um, there was a, a case that I was involved in that, that went up on appeal uh, where the, the district court judge said that this ingredient isn't patentable. It's not patent eligible. You never should have got, even though the patent office had been issuing patents on it for 15 years, you shouldn't have had patents on it. And it's a very, it's probably the most high profile area of intellectual property law that exists right now, both at the uh, court level, the judicial level, and at the legislative level. It's, it's uh, whether or not something is patent eligible or not is a very, uh, is a very big thing. So we had an appeal that we got a, a favorable decision for the supplement industry in February of 2019. And uh, that clarified that and said, yes, you know, these things can be patentable. So in that respect, that gave clarity to the supplement industry. It actually helped the pharmaceutical biotech industries. It also gave some guidance to maybe the patent office, to examiners who are sitting over there looking at these things every day. And I think on the same day that some patents were invalidated for this, another patent off that exact same family issued out of the patent office. So it was kind of the left hand and the right hand, two branches of government working differently. Legislatively, it is important. The catching up part is it's a kind of a Washington, D.C. Um, machine to get things through Congress to educate people. And then when it turns into a law, it gets kicked out into the courts. I mean, the court system treats all judges are have their own way of thinking. Certainly they set precedent. But what I found over the years in intellectual property law is that where you used to say Delaware thinks one way, the Eastern District of Texas thinks the other way. Now you'll be sitting there saying, judge, Gilstrap in the Eastern District of Texas thinks differently than another judge in the Eastern District of Texas. And, and right now, uh, the Western District of Texas, primarily Austin, is the hot spot for, for IP. So that starts to create your body of law, and then it actually goes through the appellate process. And so it's kind of like a, a constant meat grinder mm-hmm. um, where everyone has a different incentive in the, in the outcome in the branches of the government. Just going back to your earlier point, I mean, what makes something patent eligible or, or not? Well, there's a there's a line of Supreme Court cases. There are about four Supreme Court cases um, that have defined patent eligibility for quite a few years now, and has really created quite a problem when trying to enforce intellectual property. So you're sitting there getting patents issued to you, and then you go to enforce these patents, and someone says, "Oh, that's not patentable under statute." 35 USC 101. And then you're fighting that out in court and you're getting disparate decisions from various courts across the span of judges. One thing you can do is then appeal it to the federal circuit, the court of appeals for the federal circuit, which is a specialized court for patent uh, cases it's based in Washington, DC, about a half a block from the white house. And that's kind of where real from the judicial branch, that's where the judges who deal with the patent cases that this is what they do. And they're trying to maybe harmonize that things go up to the Supreme Court. And of course, the Supreme Court is what rules. So when you were getting conflicting or misinterpreted law out of the Supreme Court, when you look at that, what happens is where we start our fight, which is in federal district courts, that Supreme Court law is what has to be applied. And it wasn't being applied equally or consistently. And every judge was having their own interpretation of that. It became a very scary time for the supplement industry because they kind of went after two sides of of industries, natural uh, things that might naturally occur or a natural product on the uh, life sciences side. And then on the tech side, they're really trying to get rid of what are, you know, abstract ideas or things related to 
the computer industry and that kind of stuff. So in sticking to the life sciences fight, this starts to bleed over into pharmaceuticals. It starts to bleed over into medical device, biotechnology. I mean, fortunately, the result um, has become one of the three or four controlling cases um, in that area that's kind of defined what that means as far as patent eligibility for um, supplements and pharmaceuticals. And it's been, I think it's been very helpful. Ironically, when we got that decision, it was immediately taken by one company up to the Supreme Court that day that was trying to decide whether or not to take a case. Our case that was taken up there actually caused the Supreme Court to stop what they were doing and send it over to the inspector general to see if he wanted to comment. And then it also, in district courts around the country, a lot of people went back and said, hey, we just had this new ruling. We'd like you to apply this new law. And so I know at least in one very large pharmaceutical case, a judge had to reconsider a ruling that he'd made related to this very area. And so, you know, patent eligibility in this area, and that's why I think patenting IP is so important for the supplement industry. You really have to work with the folks that understand your business understand, and understand this, the laws that applies. And, and uh, so in doing patent prosecution, which is obtaining patents, at least in our group, you know, we make everyone also do some litigation so they can see how those patents end up getting beaten up and how that language gets um, churned and misused or uh, interpreted differently. So it makes them smarter as they try to pick specific words and phrases to use in patenting to make those patents stronger and more enforceable because at the end of the day, a patent only gives you one right and that's the right to exclude others. And as I tell a lot of people, if you're not going to do something with your patents, buy art, it's cheaper. Patents, <laughs> patents are very expensive. So I'm just thinking, I mean, this is a new problem, but it, it's not. Like if you think about software, MP3 players, internet, I mean, those were all things that tested IP laws. Can we learn anything from the past? Yeah, I think you can. And I think the real thing is to what you're, what are you going to rely upon in your innovation? In other words, think forward, not just in the present, because the law is always evolving and kind of changing and adapting and hopefully um, when necessary. And so you, you have to look at the laws that exist today. And then, but you also have to be looking forward, especially intellectual property law. And we can't always see with the crystal ball as to where we think it's going to go. But, you know, as I kind of say, we can kind of help keep you between the ditches, right? I mean, keep you from running off the road and say, in innovation, also be looking at these types of things. And this is something that I've preached to scientists for many years because a lot of scientists are very goal oriented. Their project is to come up with a supplement for you know, doing something that assists in um, lowering cholesterol or relieving uh, pain. Now I have to use these FDA words uh, so I don't sound like I'm making a disease claim here. But, mm -hmm. but in doing so, think about the different ways this can be done and think beyond what just your goal is, which is to get to something that does that because there's a lot of really good what I call research tool technology that gets left on the cutting room floor as they go along. You know, I needed to kind of create this to get to my next step. And what they don't realize is what they just created could be very valuable. Uh, CRISPR technology is a very good example of that, which is, very, which is something that's on the rise. And so uh, there's some very famous technologies like uh, PCR, polymerase chain reaction on DNA amplification, that was really had nothing to do with the project they're working on for a drug, but it was uh, the only person that cared about it was the IP attorney said, I think there's something there. So while I'm constantly telling scientists, don't ever think that something you're doing that seems basic, you, you know, might not be novel. And if it's novel, could there be some value there? But really what we try to tell people in innovation 
when they're, when they're out there trying to create new products or things like that is we try to take a, a broad approach. We're not just looking at what the ingredient is or even what the ultimate supplement that might, it might go into, but we're also looking at the methods of manufacturing. What's your process for that? Certain types of machinery, are there certain types of solvents that work better than others? And then also we'll take it all the way down to consumer packaging because there are such things as design patents. And I think that also plays into 3D printing technologies, design patents, which are more about the, the shape of things and stuff like that, where you can get protection as well. So, and then we just try to create a, uh, as we kind of call it, uh, if your supplement is your castle, we're trying to create a moat around it of intellectual property. So no one can, can kind of, so you can kind of protect that and defend anyone uh, that might want to compete in that space or take that technology from you. Mm-hmm. Uh, lots of great stuff for companies to think about. What does the future hold for 3D printing? Do you think that that's something that pretty much every company is going to eventually have? I think a lot of things are going to drive 3D printing. I mean, I think one of the things that's going to drive it right now might even be just the basic idea. We have so much more awareness now of supply chain and where things need to be more readily available that we can't wait for something to sit X amount of days on the water coming over from another country and then sit 70 mile line at the Long Beach port. Can't have that anymore. But I think more importantly, 3D printing is going to evolve because it's an efficiency level. So it's, it's almost like a robotics manufacturing facilities where all you do is take your ingredients and put them in this one end. And essentially it's kind of what you used to see in cartoons, out the other side comes your product. But in the meantime, what you've done in the, in the middle of using 3D printing is you've most likely found a way. And I think, I think, you know, the real question is, is how do you do it and keep your cost of goods at the right level or even lower? I think that'll be the evolution for the cost side of it. I think the creativity side of it is endless. And I think you got to start with delivery systems. Um, what am I trying to deliver? And am I trying to deliver it in, in a certain way, certain things releasing at a certain time? So it's taking, it's taking some old technologies or old ideas, but using them in a new and novel way, which is perfectly acceptable in patent law. So I think that's, that's going to be the big thing. But I mean, look, you just saw an Israeli company a month or so ago print the first ribeye steak. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> astounding to me, which is fascinating. And you're going to start to see that. I think you're certainly going to see it, you know, in the, in the food side, but in the supplement side where often we're just one degree away from making things in the same formats as pharmaceuticals, you're going to start to see people get more creative because they need that. They either need that separator from their competitors um, or they need to, to really get creative and, and, and innovative and say, how do I, how do I do something and I think personalized medicine is really probably one of the biggest drivers on this um, in supplementation. How do I do this where the delivery of what I want is, is being ingested exactly as I'd like it to? Is there anything I can do to make that more attractive to the consumer or the person um, taking it? And then I think, you know, also from a manufacturing standpoint, I think it is definitely going to move that way. I, I know that years ago, I met with a, a trade association relating to manufacturing. 3D printing scared them because it, it's talking about automating jobs, right? You know, it's, it's here, it's not going anywhere. It's only going to continue. And I think with the evolution you see in the supplement space, as well as, as food, what we're seeing are ingredients that are more, that are being developed, that are more able to, to withstand and go through a 3d printing process, as opposed to, you know, how soluble something is in water, this that doesn't have to change um, by virtue of the way it had, but it has to be considered when you start looking at 3D at 3D printing. So I think the kind of patents people get 
you know, you might have some people kind of slip and fall on the ice in the beginning because what they, just by using the word phrase 3D printing, they thought they had something uh, and really they need to probably go a step deeper in trying to claim their, their invention. But anyway, I mean, it's certainly a work in progress, but it's a, it's a expeditious process at this point. If it's, it's a little bit of a race, in my opinion, if you really want to try to have that, you know, first mover status in this area. So I think, I think it's good. And I think, uh, you know, companies are always interested in hearing new ideas. Rarely do they hear them from attorneys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you've given them a lot of great things to think about uh, with the rise of 3D printing. Brands really have to consider all their options, whether it's planning ahead to prevent theft of their property or coming up with new innovation. So you've given them quite a bit to think about. Attorney Kevin Bell, great to have you on the NutriCast today. Thanks so much, Danielle. It's great being on. I appreciate it. If you like what you just heard, you can subscribe to the NutriCast wherever you get your podcast. You can also head to NutraIngredients-USA.com for even more Nutra-related content. Thank you for listening. I'm Danielle Masterson. As always, I'll catch you here on the NutriCast next week.